Welcome to episode 99B of No Challenges <laughs> Remaining. This is such a joke, but I love it. It's pretty I want to just keep doing this. I kind of want to, yeah. Let's go to Z. <laughs> let's see how long we can stretch this thing. I'm Ben Rothenberg, joined for the 99th beef time by Courtney Nguyen. Hi, Courtney. How are you? Hello, Ben. And how are you? I'm Good. doing well. We're having a rare episode in the same time zone, but not together. This is true. This is very, very true. On the same coast, even. I know. So, yes, I am in currently in New York um, on vacation-ish. I mean, no, actually, it is vacation, I have to say. Um, So, yeah, and Ben is back a little bit south of me in Washington, D.C. Fun times shoveling slush today. What you haven't missed on the East Coast being here, I tell you. It's funny because I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day because I was – I have actually been really enjoying the cold weather. I like cold weather anyway. It's been, like, freezing or below freezing here in New York, and I still will, like – I was waiting for her outside of her building and I was like standing outside instead of just going into the hotel, into the building lobby to stay warm. And she's like, what the fuck are you doing? And I was like, I really am enjoying it. It feels good. She's like, you are insane. I was like, I know. So, um, yeah, I've just been, I don't know. I've been enjoying the cold weather. It's a California thing. It's exotic to me. I like cold weather. It would get Um, old if you ever lived in one of these places. I totally agree with that because just, I mean, having to live in Acclimate weather is not something that um, I am equipped to do (laughs) at all as a Californian where, you know, we complain when the temperature drops below 60 degrees Fahrenheit. So, um, yeah, but at least for a week, it's been it's been really nice. Very cool. So on this episode, we're going to talk about the recent results, Acapulco, Dubai and Doha. We're also then going to more importantly and substantially be joined for an interview by Pam Shriver, who shares her thoughts and wisdom on all sorts of the past and present of tennis. And then we're going to rant rave and wrap up the show. One quick housekeeping note before we get into the main part of the show. We have a listener survey that we built on SurveyMonkey. If you guys want to go fill it out, we have links to it on our Facebook page and on our Twitter. We've tweeted a bunch of times. Put a link to it in the description of this episode also so if you guys can fill that out it's been fun reading all the responses from you guys <laughs> they're they're pretty much people are on both sides of the aisle on most things which is good um, but it's interesting to find out more about you because it's been a very one-way conversation for the most part so it has this been. is your time to uh to chime in and give your thoughts on the beast that is ncr as we dance around episode 100 and it's really helpful to us just to know, even if there's stuff, even if you like hate listen to the show. And we've gotten <laughs> a few I'm of those sure, responses. Yeah, I'm sure that there are people who are out there who do do that, or maybe like listened once and then stopped listening because something turned you off, like the fact that I say like all the time and talk like I'm from California. Like, yeah. But whatever it is, it's incredibly helpful for us to know just as we kind of hit, you know, round out to this 100 episode mark. And, you know, we want to try and make this a little bit more of a tight professional operation as opposed to kind of the basement podcast that it really started as. It's really, really helpful for us to get just even basic information about who's listening, you know, where do you live? Do people, you know, is this a domestic American thing or is this like an international podcast? All of that um, is incredibly helpful for us as we start to make some decisions going forward. So please just take, you know, 10 seconds and fill it out. It would be wonderful. (laughs) 
speaking of wonderful, there's no better word to describe David Ferrer lately, I guess. It's so true. David Ferrer has been quietly, we haven't talked about him much on the show, but now he wins his third title by the end of February, and he kind of deserves the A block here. Ferrer winning Acapulco, his back-to-back 500 titles on different surfaces, which is impressive, on different continents. That's First time since Jimmy Connors or something in the mid-80s? Winning, doing what? Doing that, winning back-to-back. I saw Greg Sharko tweet it. Oh. Yes, so according to Greg Sharko of the ATP, with the Rio Open and Acapulco titles, David Ferrer is the first since Ivan Lendl in 1985 to win ATP World Tour titles back-to-back weeks on clay and hard. Very go. specific thing, but... but um, still shows hey. it hasn't been done in, in 30 years, so that's pretty Exactly cool. right. So good on David. We talked about him a little bit randomly when we talked about Lepchenko um, and take a number to, or a couple weeks ago. He hasn't really reached the level of being top flight relevant yet. Winning back-to-back 500s, especially after the year he had last year, do you think? That if let's say Rafa, let's say Rafa doesn't win the French for this argument's sake, can Ferrer make it through a draw without him? Does you need to anything? win the French Open. Yeah, to like to win a Slam, to do no. something he hasn't done before. No, I still don't think so. Honestly, it's not a critique of Ferrer. It's more of a compliment to the rest of the field, and specifically Novak Djokovic, even a, a Federer, even an Andy Murray. Like I still think that those guys are the guys to beat. So just not having Rafa uh, in his way in Paris, I don't think would make me put him on a short list to win that title. But it's incredibly impressive. And when I was in Rio last week, or I guess two weeks ago, and I talked to Ferrer after he won the title there, I mean, it was it was very interesting. And I was really kind of taken aback by his reaction after winning Rio. It was a very heartfelt reaction. It was, you could tell that it was different. It was different than having seen him win titles in the past. And when I think of David Ferrer, I often think of kind of a very workmanlike, you know, we hear the word terrier all the time, like just a very workmanlike tennis player. Just very puts on his, very Yeah, just puts on his hard, I mean, we're mixing dog and construction metaphors here, <laughs> but like, he's like this little Jack Russell terrier that puts on a little tiny, adorable hard hat and goes to work every day. And you can't help but respect that. And it's great. But I think that we are seeing a little bit more emotion from him at least I have in the last couple of weeks um, just an incredible start to the season for him he's only lost one match and that was to Kaney Shikori with a bloody foot at the Australian Open this season one Doha beating Burdick there now he beats Kaney Shikori to win Acapulco and Nishikori had his number for a while Exactly. So these are really big wins for him. And and when I spoke to him, and we'll include, uh, I guess we can play some of the audio of my interview with him after he won Rio, you know, he was not shy about basically saying, I'm in my twilight years. And every single time I win a title right now, I recognize that it could be my last. And that means so much more to him. So here is David and Courtney. On, on court, you said that you don't know how many, uh, how much longer maybe yeah. you keep playing, and yet you're still making these changes to your game. I mean, how do you explain that? Some people yes, would... because I never, you know, we never know. Uh, I am 32 years old. In one month, I will be with 33 years old. I am in a good moment. I know, and always I will try to do my best and I want to be with the best place of the world but uh, you know it's important uh, when I cool uh, when I won one tournament it's uh, you know it's a very special moment for me because uh, maybe it's going to be the, the last and, and now when I, I am going to play in a center uh, center court an important court I am trying to enjoy uh, this moment do you think about that do you think about yeah, the sure. end 
yeah. that, that that this is the the last no I am not th thinking about the end but I know that the the end is close than than closer closer, closer. yeah yeah, yeah. begin no? yeah uh, and but no I am I am only focusing in the moment mm -hmm. uh, to be uh, enjoying the my my moment I am in a good moment and uh, it's it's nice to me I am in a good uh, moment in, in my life uh, when you think back to last year some of the you know earlier losses and difficult losses and things like mm. that uh, you know were those moments where you thought okay I have to make improvements on my game was it oh I need to just get healthy I do no <laughs> nothing special the mm. last year I think uh, I did a good year. Mm -hmm. I, I finished the year ten of the world. But you know, there are more young, there are younger players mm -hmm. uh, like uh, Kei Nishikori, Silic won a Grand Slam, Babrinka, Grigor Dimitrov. So mm -hmm. you know, every year is more difficult to be there yeah. with the best place of the world. And last year I finished ten of the world. I tried to do my best. I fight to be there, and uh, well. Uh, finally, I could play one match in the in the Master Cup of, mm -hmm. of London. Uh, at that point, it's it's good. Now I am in another year, and uh, for me, the the past is the past. The past. Mm -hmm. The past is uh, is finished. Mm -hmm. It's not important. I only focus on the moment. So then, when you look forward, what are you look? Are you looking towards Olympics? Do you just take it? When uh, I mean, what's your Olympic goal? Games, maybe it's a good goal. Yeah. it's a good goal. Of course, it's it's. Uh, it's gonna be difficult because in Spain we have a yeah. very good <laughs> tennis players. Yes. But well, it's it's a good goal. Of course, I I will try to do my best for be there mm -hmm. uh, because sure, I'm not sure because we never know. But <laughs> but uh, it's I have more possibilities that is gonna be my my last Olympic Games. Right. Uh, so many people talk about how you are the most respected. Uh, player in the men's locker room. All the other players oh. respect you a lot. I mean, I wonder what what you think of that. And I am glad. <laughs> this is a good adjective. No. Adjective. Yeah. 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 Perfect. Yeah. And well, uh, what can I say? It's the opinion that the other tennis players. Of course, I have a lot of respect for the tennis players and for the the like uh, best players of the world, like Rafael. Roger, well, the, in the in the tour we have uh, uh, we are a good, uh, you know, uh, the sport it's it's nice. Winning the third title makes me feel like forever the story of the week. Even though there was a Federer Djokovic final elsewhere in the world between number one and number two in Dubai, and Federer got the better of him in Dubai, like he did last year. Also in Dubai, that was a semi in Dubai last year where Federer beat Djokovic, and it really sort of sparked the meat of Federer's comeback when I think it became clear that it was going to be a pretty, it could be a really good year for Federer in 2014, like it turned out to be. Courtney, how should Federer feel about his start to the year? I, I mean, wins Brisbane, wins Dubai, great. But then you got to feel like at some level he's also in it for the slams, even with wins over Djokovic and Dimitrov and Ronich and Chorich and whatever else he's already done this year. I mean, you got to feel like overall probably gives himself like a B plus to the start of the year tops, I would think. Yeah, I think that that's probably right, especially given relatively busy off season or quote unquote off season only because his off season started much later because of Davis Cup. So when you take into consideration 
fatigue levels and things like that. It's it's been a great start to the season for Roger. Now, at the same time, like I don't think that you know, this is the conversation that goes on around Roger Federer every single time. Yeah, he can do it best of three. Yeah, he can do it across one week. Can he replicate this sort of success at the majors? And, you know, at the Australian Open, he loses, what, in the third round to Seppi? Yep. And looked incredibly flat in that match. So, you know, in a sport where we really put a lot of emphasis on the majors in terms of dictating how good your year is or how bad your year is, et cetera, et cetera, you know, it's still, we're going to have to wait and see you know, I guess really when Wimbledon rolls around, because it's it's harder to obviously gauge his success at the French, but to see where his year is. But I mean, obviously getting these wins over Djokovic in straight sets yeah. in uh, uh, Dubai, beating Raonic with Raonic playing incredibly well um, to start the season in Brisbane. Those are big wins for him. And, you know, he's playing good tennis. I mean, he's like, he's, there's no question right now for me that he's the number two player in the world, but at the majors, I still, I still have that question mark and I will probably continue to have that question mark. But what, I mean, in the big scheme of things, there's not a ton to complain about for Roger to start 2015. With the win, he moves to 20 and 17 lifetime over Djokovic, which I think gives him a pretty good shot with assuming there aren't that many more years left in Federer's career. It's a nice cushion. It makes you think that he probably will, could very well could end with a winning record against Djokovic when his career is all said and done. How important is that for Federer's legacy, do you think, especially given the manhandling he's taken from uh, from Rafa? I don't think that really matters. I mean, 20 and 17, they're two players who what are separated by six years in age. Mm-hmm. Right. Six or five or six years. I mean, Djokovic's best years come at a time when Federer was kind of more closer to the op- the other side of the, the mountain than the ascent. Um, it's that's why I, f- I think that the Djokovic uh, Federer rivalry or head to head just doesn't really have as much visceral impact for me. It's only one year different it. than Rafa, though. It's only yes, one but the difference is that Rafa's prime came closer to Fed's prime. OK, that's true. For me, so viscerally, I don't have as much of a reaction to Federer finishing with a winning record over Novak compared to what, you know, obviously what his record is against Rafa. Not because, oh, Federer got dominated by Rafa. I don't care about that. But I just feel like at least with Rafa and Fed, they were competing at their best for a longer stint of time than Roger and Novak or Roger and Murray, for example. So I don't really think it matters if he finishes with the winning record over Novak. I know that, you know, statistically it'll get extrapolated out in the same way with the Rafa, right? Like, how can you be the GOAT if you weren't like the GOAT in your own era? But that's a much cleaner argument to make with respect to Rafa than it is to Novak because Novak has really, you know, hit his stride with when Roger began to struggle in his career. Yeah, you think about it, like Novak won his second slam in 2011 that's when he really came on mm-hmm. and rafa had won two slams by 2006 right so that's yeah that's very different time frame speaking of rafa let's just wrap up the atp rafa went down to buenos aires after his time in rio and won a 250 there which had a not great field to begin with and got weaker as it went along he played four unseated argentines on his way to the title beat them all still win is a win and it's rafa's first title since the French Open for his own confidence, having been around him recently in Brazil. Courtney, do you think this is a a significant marker for Rafa at all? I think it is to him. I think that objectively, we look on it at it from the outside, and you're like, well, 
duh, you better be winning 250s on clay. Right. You know, like, I mean, anything short of of walking away with that title this week would have been really kind of disastrous in a lot of ways. And I was just thinking about it during the rain delay in, in Sunday's final. Like, oh, man, I really don't want to write a, 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 anything if Rafa loses. Like, that's... It becomes it becomes a result that's impossible to ignore, and it becomes a result that is kind of telling in a lot of ways. So, yeah, I, I, I'm glad that he was able to pull that out. So, yeah, I mean, I think you and I have talked about this before, Ben, about subjective, like, truths versus objective right. truths. So I feel like this is, you know, another situation for Rafa. Like, it doesn't really matter what the rest of us think. What matters is what he thinks. And if he winning that 250 and getting on the board with a title, first title in, you know, since last whatever, May or June, if that's a big deal to him and if that means that he's going to, like, play with more confidence, then, yeah, it's massive. It definitely moves the ball forward more so than if he had stalled out again for the second straight week. So Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. And I think that basically what you said is right. The stakes were sort of skewed where him winning is like, yeah, okay. But him losing would have been a disaster. Mm-hmm. So he avoided disaster, which is which is an accomplishment, avoiding disaster. It's yeah. Yeah, that's all he said for that. And he yeah, moves on. And I think it'll be very interesting to see how he does in Indy Wells in Miami, because Indy Wells is a tournament where he has done well. Doesn't yeah. have a lot of points to defend. Uh lost third round last two Dolga Polov. Yeah, it's a tournament where I think he could definitely put himself back in contention. It's a somewhat important part of the season for him coming up to get his footing back against these top players consistently heading into the clay. Although, yeah. obviously, things will fix itself, you would think, when you get back on European clay. But winning doesn't hurt. You would think, but he needs... Yeah, I think that he does need to like build the momentum through the North American hard courts, again, for himself, to feel like he's playing the right way or feel like he's getting wins over, over players that matter to him or competing well, whatever it is, whatever it is that kind of like impacts his psyche on a positive level, um, that's what he needs through the the Indian Wells Miami double and then he gets he can hit Monte Carlo with the with a with kind of more steam than if he has like a kind of if he if he loses in like the third round in both Indian Wells and Miami to players he really shouldn't be losing to I think that there's obviously a heck of a lot more doubt when his feet hit the clay there's only a couple women's tournaments this week the smaller one was in Acapulco, where we were denied the chance of seeing Maria Sharapova wearing a sombrero. God damn it! Which I know you were really excited excited about. Stupid Montezuma's revenge. Yeah, so Maria was not the first person to fall stomachly ill in Mexico while visiting there. And the title wound up being won by Tamea Baczynski, who has done really well, moved up like over 200 spots in the rankings in just over a year, more or less. So... Her climb has been pretty incredible. She beat Garcia in the final and Karatanchva in the semis, which just shows you what kind of week that was. Weird week for a lot of people coming out of nowhere to do well. We'll get to one of them later. Also, in, just briefly, in, in, on the men's side in Dubai, uh, Borna Chorich made the semis, routing Andy Murray. So weird. It was very strange. I didn't I didn't get to see any of that match, but the stats for him were crazy. He, Murray only won 14% of points on return. Yeah. Which is weird because Chorich is not like a serve bot either. No. It's I don't know. I mean, because I I didn't get to see the match uh, much either because, as I said, I'm on vacation. But, yeah, just looking at the stat sheet, I've heard that like the stats, especially some of the subjective stats were totally wrong with respect to like winners and unforced errors and things like that. But, yeah, just even the completely objective stats. That's a weird one. Yeah. 
So elsewhere in the Middle East was the biggest women's tournament of the week in Doha, which is won by Lucy Shafashova, or Safarova, as she's, as she's known in, in more English circles. She won over Victoria Azarenka. So I think Azarenka is the bigger story here. Obviously, Lucy's done well, uh, but I think Lucy's a little bit still in that category of Ferrer where she can have the sort of nice medium results, but she still has something to prove in terms of being huge hardware relevant on some level. You say that's fair? Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, I think that with Lucy, what becomes so frustrating because she's so good and like you watch her and you're like, why has this woman not made more slam semifinals or won more titles and things like that? And it's really just seems mental with her because she's a pretty good athlete. She's got good power, you know, a good serve, all these sorts of things, lefty, and it just never really comes together. So it could be that this comes together, but I just know that as someone who sits and has to do those draw previews all the time for slams or masters or not masters, I'm sorry, premier mandatories and things. I always look at where Lucy is in the draw because I find her to be intellectually for me, a relevant player and a dangerous player who can pull off an upset any given day of the week. But then I look through it. I'm like, I don't know. Like, you know, like I, I she hasn't, I don't have the confidence quite yet. And she hasn't strung together wins on a consistent basis. And she's yeah, had a couple yeah. big one-off wins and more than that, a lot of close calls where she'll like push yeah. somebody deep in the third and then ultimately lose valiantly. So maybe she's turning a corner here. It's definitely something, she's definitely one to watch for results in Indy Wells in Miami to see if she can back this up. Yep. But for bigger picture, I think the more proven commodity in this match, even though rankings-wise she's way lower now, is Azarenka. And Azarenka's return to form, beating Wozniacki, beating Venus uh, to get to the final, it really says a lot about her being ready to be a, a shortlist relevant player again sooner rather than later, I think. Oh, for sure. I mean, she's playing, you know, top, what, 15 tennis? Yeah. I would say, you yeah. know, beat also Svitolina. I mean, she had a tough draw in Doha, beat Svitolina, beat Venus, Caroline, and then just, you know, kind of ran out of gas against Safarova. But, um, you know, a very confidence-boosting week for her. I think that from the rest of the tourist perspective, the faster Victoria Azarenka gets her ranking up, the better. Yeah. You know, some of these matches that she's having to play in the early rounds, like no one should be having to play those matches. I mean, that's just like a brutal matchup for anybody who draws her and also for her i mean you know like she's in a situation where she's playing you know a good level of tennis and you know you don't want to see her having to like work so hard to have to get through a draw you know to get to the business end but um but yeah good stuff and and um, good wins what do you make ben of her now really embarrassingly dominant wins over caroline wozniacki yes this year? She, she had owned that rivalry a bit in the later stages of or I mean she's had a couple wins over her, but Wozniacki was someone with a winning record over Azarenka for a while and I remember even people saying that when Vika was on the streak even though Wozniacki had really fallen off at that point like well if only as Wozniacki could come along and stop the streak <laughs> we haven't seen what she can do against Wozniacki her old nemesis yeah and this year it's been really lopsided uh, Azarenka's really taken it to Wozniacki a couple times now this one was more lopsided than the other one in Australia yeah. Um, the only yeah. interest, yeah, I mean, this was like a totally flat match. Azarenka had it in control the entire time. The only thing that made the match really memorable was just a really amazing outburst of of umpire player fireworks towards the end of the first set. Yeah, Azarenka was totally fine in this situation, and the other two kind of the umpire and Wozniacki were both like 
What are you doing? It was super weird. I mean, for those people who don't know, it was towards the end of the first set of their match. And uh, at 30 all with Caroline serving to stay in the set, she hit what looked like a double fault. The second serve hit the net cord and then bounced really slowly. And it looked very clearly out. No call was made. So it was called in, meaning that she would get a second serve. It It was a let. And Azarenka challenged, invoked Hawkeye. Hawkeye was down. So the call stood. Azarenka was beside herself because seriously on the replay, it's so out. Like, yeah. And that would have given her a set point. And so Azarenka's all peeved off. She's going off with the the umpire. She can't believe it. Then Wozniak, he gets into it and is like, I should get a first serve <laughs> because there it's been such, a, such a long delay now because of the, the thing, which that was pretty ballsy, I have to say. <laughs> Strange goings on. Azarenka's already pretty irate. Forever, you get a first set. It's normal. The system was not available. Yeah, so that's not my fault. It's not your fault. That it's you... not my fault. There was a challenge, though. The challenge is not happening. I deserve a so second so well, is right here. After 10 minutes, I deserve to have a second We are delaying even, even more now. Yeah, so. but it, I don't give a shit. I mean, it doesn't matter. My apologies for all the language. I've already waited five minutes. Apologies for Caroline Wozniacki, so rather loose tongue. You're only you're only stuck with him because you're scared to overrule him. The rule is that because it's like so clear that actually she double faulted. Like everybody on the court knows that she double faulted, and she meanwhile has the cojones to be like, actually, I didn't double fault, and also I want a first serve. (laughs) It was audacious. It was audacious, and the supervisor had to. It was just. I don't know what Caroline was thinking. It was just like the stupidest thing to even argue about. But but you know, I mean that in a lot of ways though, that that's kind of Caroline, right? As much as, as she has this nickname of sunshine and the nice girl and all these sorts of things, like on court we've seen it time and time and time she, again. She is kind of gamey. <laughs> she she <laughs> argues with chair empires more than anybody yeah more than anybody in the atp or wta top 10 she yes. is the arguiest for sure and it's sort of remarkable that it's really at odds with her at least her initial image when she came on tour although back in the day do you remember do you know this caroline fun fact that when she was at the u.s yes. open in junior she got defaulted um audible of sanity even though she said something that was not really that obscene yep. um so yeah so she has a history bad girl caroline you know <laughs> Onto a quick version of our drag slay slay drag segment, which has been positive feedback from in the survey, so that's good. Thank you for that. This segment is slaying, Ben. Oh, it's slaying. So the person who slayed this week, uh, sort of an overdue slaying in his career, it might be said, was Ryan Harrison, who, who finally came through on his 23rd try to be a top 10 player, beating Grigor Dimitrov 6-0 in the third. In Acapulco, he backed it up with a very solid win over Ivo Karlovic in the next round. And Harrison had quietly a pretty decent year early on. He he won the Challenger during the first week of the year in Happy Valley, Australia, which I, weird, just because Happy Valley is Penn State in the U.S. So having it be something else where minor tennis is held in Australia is sort of random. And then yeah, he, he had not great results. Played well against Nishikori in Memphis, but then this run came out of nowhere, and he was as good as I've ever seen him, if not much better. He and was actually some, aggressive. He was aggressive. He was playing defense well, too, moving really fast, looked to be in great shape, which he maybe hadn't always completely during some of his slide. He was on the verge of being out of the top 200 very recently and is now going to be closer to, I think, one in the upper part of the outside of the top 100. So 
big climb for him and for someone who we actually talked about a lot in early NCR days as being a very polarizing but at the same time seemingly relevant person who had become very irrelevant on tour lately. It was it was good to see him because he's only 22 still. He's yeah. in that Dimitrov, uh, Ronich generation. The three of them were sort of paired together initially and Ryan had totally fallen off. Good to see him making good on his potential because it really looked like he was going the wrong way for a long time. And the dragged person of the week is Ryan Harrison. <laughs> Ryan Harrison, after getting to the semifinals of Acapulco, this was tough to watch in some ways because he had, had such a good week. He won the first set of the semifinal against David Ferrer 6-4. Ferrer wasn't playing great, but Harrison was playing well. And then Ferrer got broken. Uh, Fer- sorry, Ferrer broke in the opening game of the second set. And I remember t- thinking, like, it seemed more serious than it should be. I tweeted something like, it's going to be a moment of truth to Ryan. And indeed it was because he didn't win another game. And he got <laughs> virtually double bageled. You don't see that very often. Someone losing the first set and then going on a tear 0-0. Especially against in the ATP against a pretty good server. Right. Yeah, so, I mean, yeah. yeah that, was, that, was, that was tough to watch, that, that <laughs> match. But it shouldn't take away from the overall. Overall, this week was a slay for him. But the end was very draggy. For sure. And, and you know, and then we saw something kind of similar, really, with, with Chorich out in uh, Dubai as yeah. well, you know, making that run, hitting the semifinals and then just getting absolutely schooled by Roger, which is going to happen. He didn't get but he got schooled. He didn't get dragged. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I feel like Ryan got dragged a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, like they say, the ATP guys will tell you this all the time. There is no shame in getting your butt handed to you by David Ferrer. Yeah, well, they they respect that guy so much. They he do. Word for him. Just so much respect. Um, and thanks also to Harrison. Harrison uh, helped out talking to me with a story I did on match fixing earlier this week, which I talked about on the Hang Up Listen podcast yesterday, uh, if you guys want to check that out as well. So Harrison, who knew that Harrison knows Dennis Molchanoff? Why would that be a thing that exists? Apparently? It was a super great quote. I mean, I thought Ryan's comments were that were in your Slate article were like really good. They were They kind of showed how much this is discussed, you know, like in the locker room and um, that these things, these potential fixed matches and the players who are involved in them, um, it doesn't go unnoticed. Yeah. So there you go. So that was Ryan Harrison, our slayer and draggy. But overall, I think overall slay. So hold your head up high, Ryan, and wipe that drag off. <laughs> Next up on the show, we have an interview that I did earlier today with Pam Shriver. Pam is a beloved broadcaster for uh, for many years. My whole tennis consciousness, essentially. Aunt Pimmy. Aunt Pimmy, and I know Courtney, you weren't able to join us, but what is what would you people who aren't in the U.S. who don't know Pam Shriver well? How would you describe her sort of place in the American tennis landscape currently? Because I think she definitely has a I don't want to call her an institution, but she kind of is. Yeah, she's a personality that is incredibly relevant, that is constant within your kind of American tennis consciousness, not just because, obviously, of her history as a tennis player and all that, but now, especially with ESPN, now having the rights to all four majors. And so ESPN becomes the delivery mechanism of tennis within America. So you become very familiar with those faces of Mary Jo Fernandez, Patrick McEnroe, Darren Cahill, Brad Gilbert, and, of course, Pam Shriver, Chris McKendry, all of, you know, Fowler, all those guys. Carrillo so, formerly, yeah. Carrillo formerly. But these are the these are the names and the faces and the voices that bring tennis, the biggest events, to us. So with respect to Pam Shriver, I am admittedly not unbiased here. I'm a big fan. I think that she's an incredibly polarizing commentator slash personality. I know because I see comments on Twitter and things like that. But what I always respect about Pam is that 
whenever I, I'm at a tournament, especially a major, like I, she's the one that I see like hustling. Like she's got her tennis shoes on. She is sprinting with her hat, with her, got her sunblock all on lockdown. And she's the one sprinting to the outer courts. She's the one that's like, I'm going to get my butt out there for Cece Bellis, uh, who looks on the verge of beating uh, uh, Dominika Sabokova. And she's there and she's watching the matches and she's not just um, a desk personality. Yeah. Like she's like in the trenches. She's very much in the trenches. And yeah. that's something we talked about some on the show, how her roles are coming up, her roles are changed and how she is of the ESPN crew and of most of the broadcasters we get into the sun, which is interesting. So just give a brief preview, not to give too much away, but about how she is the only one of that crew who is like her main job is being a tennis broadcaster. And this is her job and this is her life's work at this point. Mm -hmm. And so her dedication to it and her passion for and love for the game, I think really comes through. And she's normally a pretty light sort of lighthearted personality. And she wasn't points to this too, but I think this was a really good interview to get to really see what a, what a smart person she is. And she was a big leader for the players during much of her playing career especially the later parts uh voice for progress and equality and all that stuff at a pretty critical time for the wta tour in the early 90s so here here is pam and hope you guys enjoy very excited to have pam shriver here as our guest this week uh pam many of you know from her playing days her hall of fame status and ever presence on espn during the slams and everything else but pam also you were just telling me you've now have a new role in tennis as a tennis mom of a player moving up through the junior ranks or starting out in the junior ranks, I guess. How is, how is that new hat treating you so far? And what's that, what's that side? Yeah, it's sort of, yeah, it's interesting, Ben, because having played tennis since I was, since I can remember, I was three, four years of age and you you kind of feel like after a 19 year pro career and all the years of broadcasting and everything you've done that you've pretty much experienced um, all the major parts. And then all of a sudden, I have three kids, and the boys especially have really taken an interest to it. And my oldest, our oldest, who's ten and a half, just started playing his first couple of USTA-sanctioned ten and under satellite tournaments. And so, you know, taking him to tournaments and kind of reminiscing about what my mom, mostly my mom used to do, but my mom and my dad, and just looking through the fence um, at a match going on and seeing how your child handles it. And um, it's been fascinating. And I'm, it's, it's also a, um, I've got to tiptoe a bit. I've got to kind of be careful because I don't want to come on like his coach. He has somebody who's helping him, but obviously I know about tennis a lot more than the other parents that are taking their kids to tournaments. Yeah. and just see what he's receptive from hearing from me. And, um, you know, not 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 really mix the roles of being a parent and being a coach too much. Really, just be a be the mom and the parent parent more than the coach. And there haven't been a whole lot of relative to other sports like NBA, especially. I, I wrote about this last year. Where it's pretty common for father son pairs to make it into the league and in hockey. That happens a lot too. Baseball, um, tennis. There haven't really been a lot of multi generation tennis families. It seems like once players are pro players, they kind of want something completely yeah. different for their kids. Um, don't and to me, I, I, I kind of feel tennis is built to have the multi-generations because it's such a great sport to share with the generations. And, mm-hmm. you know, for me, this is the fourth one I've been a part of. I can remember playing tennis with my grandparents, all four of them. I played tennis with my mom and my dad, my two sisters, and now I'm enjoying playing tennis with my kids. 
Um, I'm not quite sure why there haven't been more. I, I, I feel like there's been a lot of kind of like pros, like well, maybe Taylor Dent's the best example of Phil Dent. Yeah. Um, but there's there's been a lot that have, like San and Stolly is an example of one who played the tour. But I think if you're super high profile as a champion, it's certainly been hard for the next generation to, you know, fill, fill the, fill the, fill the role. Maybe they feel pressure. Maybe kids at some point really want to actually go a different path from their parents. Um, so we'll see. In the meantime, I'm just enjoying the fact that, um, my boys, especially my daughter really can take tennis or leave it at this point, yeah. but, but, but my boys are enjoying playing whenever they can. Is it, how serious is it for them? Is it something where you feel like, are they on a professional track? Is it too easy to even, to even yeah, say that? too early to say that? I'm sure. But yeah, it's, it's way too early. I'm, I'm a real believer. My, my boys are nine and a half and ten and a half. Yeah. I'm a true believer in the multi-sport model for this age. Yeah, good. I think it's way too early to specialize in one thing. Take my older son, who's in fourth grade. He he played uh, his third year of AYSO soccer. And he really enjoyed being a goalie. And when I, I saw him in the goal, I saw certain moves with his hands and his abilities to make saves that totally reminded me of when he gets to net yeah. and his net play. Um, he, he played flag football for the first time because in fourth grade at, at uh, where my kids go to school, they start athletic teams. So the fall team for, it's actually co-ed flag football. They had one girl on the team. Mm. And so my son played flag football for the first time. Being a good athlete, he, he was fine. He enjoyed it. We don't, we are not a football family. We're not going to, he's not going to play beyond flag football. But now he's playing basketball, and he's loved many seasons of rec council basketball now for his school team. So really, in the course of a year, he plays four sports, but the only sport he really does play all year long is tennis. Yeah, I was a goalie, actually, in, in soccer and hockey, too, growing up, and definitely does help with net reflexes and things like that. There's definitely well, I, I, things to cross over, I, for sure. I get a total kick out of seeing the sport of tennis translate into other sports and it's one of the messages that i don't think we as a sport of tennis get across enough to people who aren't playing tennis is the skill is the athletic skills that your child can develop if they play tennis i mean as far as you know footwork hand-eye coordination balance endurance really anything you would want in a in a in a developing athlete the sport of tennis can help and meanwhile, parents use tennis as a method. Even if tennis isn't going to be your kid's chosen, you know, primary sport in high school, use it as a cross-training device. Use it as a way to enhance your kid's athletic ability. Um, and make make sports. Don't 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 push one sport too early. It just leads too much to too many physical problems, burnout. Um, it's just not necessary. And parents. I think in this next generation, it'll swing back to where it should be. Yeah. You mentioned net skills, which obviously is something you might have, he might have gotten genetically from you. Um, you <laughs> obviously made some of your best results were in doubles during your career. I'm just wondering what you think of the state of doubles on the tour now and the sort of, I guess, lower. I mean, I wasn't around during most of your heyday, but the um, profile of it now seems a lot, lot lower than it was when you were playing. Never well, on TV, not, really not talking about much. Yeah, I think, you know, when I played in the 70s and 80s, early 90s, um, most all the top women p- played doubles. 
Um, I mean, I played major finals against uh, Steffi Graf, Chris Everett, um, you know, the tough German-Czech team of Sukova and Kota Kiselch were both longtime top ten single players. Sukova a lot of the time in the top five. Um, so y- y- you had the bigger stars playing. I mean, obviously, Navratilova, who um, I've long considered the greatest combination singles and doubles player of all time when you look at her overall title wins in both categories. It's just ridiculous, not just in majors but in regular tour events. Um, she was she was obviously um, a great example. Billie Jean King, another great example in the 60s and 70s. And, and women's tennis held on to that longer. I think the Williams sisters and their 13 major titles, and uh, um, particularly Serena, what she's done sitting at the um, winning so many of both. But I'm not sure we're going to see that in women's tennis much more after Serena either. Um, I think I'm curious to see what Azarenka does this year with her doubles because I think sometimes it can be a great pathway to a comeback. Um, I, I do think in this day and age, if you are a top player, it's too much to play in both. And even in junior tennis, I must say, when my son played his first satellite tournament, 10 and unders, he played five matches in less than in, in a period of just over 48 hours. Wow. And, and three of the matches went the distance to a match tiebreak. And if he had also that weekend played doubles, it would have been too much tennis. So, you know, obviously in the pro game, you're going to focus on where the money and where the attention, where the media is. So doubles except for the Bryan twins and when the Williams sisters played, for the most part, has suffered. Is that something that's changed visibly over the course of, cause, I mean, even as a broadcaster for you? I'm guessing you can notice there are less and fewer and fewer times when doubles is making it onto ESPN than maybe uh, well, years ago. Yeah. We've had actually a fair bit in the last four years. When you consider what ESPN, maybe if you took a five-year snippet, I'd say the last five years between some really memorable um, situations the Bryan twins have been in, whether it's trying to win their 100th title or winning the calendar year Grand Slam or – um, you know, even this past U.S. Open in 2014, we showed them a couple times. Um, and the Williams sisters, um, you know, oftentimes we would leave, we would leave a men's, well, an example this year, but it was for a different reason. I mean, we left the fifth set of Roundich Nisha Corey to cover the Williams sisters' um, double situation that was, you know, involving Serena and her disorientation or illness right. out on court number one, we actually left a men's five-set singles match to cover the Williams sisters, and we didn't just leave it because of what was happening. We were we would probably have left it anyway, because the Williams sisters on your screen moves needles, you know, differently, moves the ratings differently. Um, someday, Nishikori and, and Raonic, and certainly in Canada and Japan, they wouldn't have <laughs> gone to a Williams sisters doubles, but in the U.S., the U.S. network is going to do that. So we've we've shown a lot of the Williams sisters the last couple of years when they've played. Yeah. One thing I wanted to ask you about is more – I was reading a book uh, by Michael Mishaw, the Ladies of the Court book, which came out near the – I guess in the early 90s um, while you were still playing, still on tour. Um, and it talked a lot – it talked some about your leadership role on WTA among the players at that time, um, which I guess is a sort of part of your career that a lot of people who – watch you play and listen to you now might not know about. So I'm just curious more about what you sort of were doing to be a leader for the players then and how, what sort of period the tour was in at that point. 
Well, in the late 70s, when I, when I made my um, debut year in 1978, uh, Billie Jean King had founded the WTA just a few years earlier. Um, Betty Stova, one of my first doubles partners and, and the player I first got to a major final with, U.S. Open of 1980, was a past president of the WTA. Martina and Chrissy were great examples of you know, current champions when I first came on. They were both either on the board or president. They both alternated um, many years as president of the Players Association. Uh, you know, this is obviously before it turned into what we know now as the WTA Tour. So I, that was the, a pathway that seemed normal to me and one that I, I remember running for the board for the first time and not making it and being a little bit sad and then running the next year and getting on the board and then remaining there for, I think, the best part of 10 years. And then... It was in the early, I think it was in the early 90s when I was elected president, and it was during a tough time. I mean, I was president, um, for example, the spring that Monica Sellis got stabbed, which I consider in women's tennis, in all the years, in my over 35 years, I consider it the most devastating thing that happened. Um, there have been other tragedies in tennis, whether it was Vetus's early death or Arthur Ashe or, um, you know, people connected to pro tennis or pro tennis players who passed away. But this was our number one player, our dominant number one player, yeah. who was attacked in the middle of a match. It was it was really horrendous, mostly for Monica, but it was also really devastating for women's tennis. And it, it shook it sort of politically because there were things like how to handle rankings um, and how to handle, you know, the sensitivity of what happened. Um, and it was it was not a great time. Uh, it was just filled with challenges. But you know what? Um, it, women's tennis has been through a lot of different challenges. And we there had been, up to that point, there had always been a history of top players having – an involvement and wanting a voice in the meeting in the meeting rooms and having a voice a say and you know it just seemed natural for me to continue that. How, how much do you think the issues that have changed the tour, I guess, especially with regards to the fight for equality with the men, um, that how different is the landscape now from what you can tell in 2015 compared to in the early 90s when you well, left that post? Uh, uh, I think one of the biggest things, and of course, having had a weekend where you see the men finishing up in Dubai and the women in Doha, and um, when you consider all the different places geographically that women's tennis is embraced and where we play, like coming off, I know Singapore hosted an amazing tour final last fall, but before that, um, Turkey had the stint, and then before that, it was, I guess, it was in Doha, and you know, those the, when when I played and we we played our tour championship in Madison Square Garden. We literally, it would have taken probably four days of, of guessing and, peop- and saying, oh, sorry, not right. If, if you'd said, where would the tour finals be in, you know, 2012, you know, Turkey, where would it be in 2009, Doha? I mean, I just yeah. don't think <laughs> we would have ever imagined. So that's been a, that's been a big, big change. Um, just how much more global and how women's tennis, women athletes are embraced in more corners of the world. As far as equality, you know, obviously the majors being the pillars of the game and knowing that we walk, we have the same, we have the same job during those two weeks at the same grounds 
you know, it became pretty much uh, a necessity for all four to realize they needed to lead, they needed to have equality. And the rest of the tour, you know, obviously men's tennis, women's tennis is still emerging, female athletes still an emerging market. And so we haven't caught up equality everywhere, whether it's endorsements or, um, you know, guarantees or what you get for an exhibition or, you know, lots and lots and lots of things are still not equal, but that's okay. The fact that the four biggest sports, the four biggest tournaments, the four majors were able to, you know, finally do what the U.S. Open did in the 70s was fantastic. How, how much do you feel? You're, do you feel yourself pushing it all for equality or a voice for women's tennis when you're when you're on the air? Either behind the scenes or, I guess, when you know, you're actually on the microphone. That's a great question because I, I've... <clears throat> I feel like whatever I do, I have to be very objective. Um, and I've said many, many a time, you know, from spring of 2008, from the moment Justine retired, it kind of sent women's tennis into a period of instability. During that time, obviously, the most dominant player has been Serena, but she's had her journeys during that time. It's It's been a challenging um, six, seven years in many ways. But I, I felt in the last year or so, it started to come out of, if you will, if I can call it a recession, you know, something that lasts, you know, a period of time and it's just not at its peak. And to me, the Australian Open this year, the draws, the stories of the draws, what was happening, it it, it finally felt back on par as far as, you know, just the storylines and the quality and the and competition. Um, and, and sometimes it's not like there hadn't been uh, majors played that felt, uh, since 08, felt um, the same amount of excitement. But overall, it's been a golden year, era of men's tennis. No kidding. You've got you've got two career Grand Slam um, players that are all-time greats playing at the same time. They're going to push each other to the end to see, you know, and people are going to argue who's better. And then you could end up having the third person, Djokovic, actually could be, who knows, could end up being also a career Grand Slam winner. And at the end of the day, may have similar major credentials. So, and and then you've got now the rising stars. So the men's, men's tennis still is sensational, and I think in its, I can't think of another time more globally enticing and exciting. It's missing an American star. Yeah. It's, it's a huge void. But, you know, women's tennis to me is, you know, getting its strength back. Um that it lost a little bit when you when you have your number one player retire. How how has how has your sort of approach to commentating and I guess the reporting part of the job that you do too? How has that um, evolved or or changed over time? Because you've worn even just with ESPN and on air, you've done a lot of different things for them. How is how is your view of that and well, your style? Do you think changed or evolved? Well, it's it's interesting how it has had its – my career with ESPN started in 1990. Yeah. My broadcast career actually started in the early 80s, 1981, CBS, who did not at that point have a full-time female broadcaster. They asked me if I would work some tournaments, including a lot of U.S. Opens in the 80s, if I was out of the tournament. So I took hold. I grabbed that opportunity while I was playing. Same thing with ESPN. In 1990, I was playing the Australian Open that year when I lost pretty early. And so I started as, say, the courtside commentator. And then 90, end of 96 
which was within 12 months of my last match, they asked me to start doing play-by-play. So, and I'd been doing booth analysts, you know, alongside whether it was um, Cliffy or sometimes Mary Carrillo. So all, already by then I had th- three different roles. And then literally by the end of the 90s and the early 2000s, Mary Jo and I, you know, we were sort of like the go-to female team. I was play-by-play. She was my analyst partner. And we called a ton of Australian Open finals. And then it was right around when I had my kids in 04, 05, where and there were some, also some changes in ESPN, and that was when um, I was asked if I, my one of my bigger roles, my primary role for a while, would be the reporter role, um, which would include some sideline commentary, but also be the reporter that would go to the happening match around the grounds. And at first, then it was it was difficult, um, but in the end. I actually took that role and kind of made it, I think, more more in the heart of the ESPN broadcast. And I, I brought some elements to it, whether it's hustling to interview coaches or, you know, people in the stands that are interesting that have something to say about the match, or maybe it's just a celebrity. You know, I kind of I really embraced that position. I still love to be in the booth. I love to analyze a match. I like to be the, you know, I love to still. But with Chrissy and, Mar- and Mary Jo. You know, their primary and most of the, what they do is booth analysts. So they don't, sometimes I just get pushed out of that role and into either play by play or the courtside analyst. So I don't mind any of them. I'll, I'll do and I'll hustle and I'll do the best I can. Um, some people say my voice and my humor and my personality comes out best courtside. And I don't disagree with that, but I'd also like to think that ESPN in this day and age, can handle an all-female booth, and I love to work the play-by-play position. You're, you mentioned your humor. Your sort of levity and the fun you clearly have with tennis. I mean, you clearly love the sport, and that comes across in your broadcasting. And I think that's one of the things that drew me a lot to tennis, too, was um, watching the Grand Slams on ESPN year after year, watching you and Mary Carrillo, and the sort of, especially even like in the early rounds when it's some match where back in those days, especially you have top seeds just absolutely rolling. And, and the amount of fun you managed to have with tennis and levity and the lack of seriousness about it um, and the sort of lack of the irreverentness of it sometimes, I think, was really huge for me in terms of getting to love the sport and love women's tennis in particular. Um, is that something you've been conscious of, about making tennis fun when you're on air? Because it, it's definitely a, a, a tone that you have and that other parts, especially, I guess, the women's tennis coverage has had on ESPN. Well, first off... Um you know, when I think about the years that I partnered with Mary Carrillo, and she was at some of the first pro tournaments I ever played in in 1978. Yeah. So she became a friend my first year on the tour. I know her really well. She's been a house guest at my house. Uh, we've been to each other's, you know, weddings. Uh, we've been to, she's been to funerals of family members of mine. You know, we've been through a, a lot of life stuff together, and we're good friends. So I think our chemistry and our we have we have similar sense of humors, I mean, slightly different, but we enjoy bringing humor into it. So, um, but I, you could say the same about you know I think a lot of people on the current ESPN team you know having fun with it like that's one thing I think John McEnroe stands out so much is not only has he been number one in the world and won every major title um, minus the French and the Australian, but um, yeah. is that he can deliver with great humor really i think that's huge for a lot of our audience is that 
not just about the tennis match, but it's presenting what's happening and occasionally making people have a laugh. So whether or not I'm conscious about it, I I try and bring humor into most things I do. When I played, I tried to have have some humor at the right time, even though a lot of times I also had some anger when I played. I was just... um, But whether it's parenting or whether it's being in a, a business meeting and it needs a little lightness. I mean, it's just one of the things in my life that's been a, a core value uh, is, is a sense of humor. One of, the, one of the tougher roles that you've had is doing the walk-on interviews at, at tournaments, like especially the U.S. <laughs> Open. Yeah. How tough is that trying to squeeze any water out of the rocks that players are sometimes yeah. walking onto court? Yeah, it's a it's a it's a tough one. Obviously, the players who make it difficult are pretty well known. Yeah. But um, you know, the ones that give you something, and Federer is probably the best example. I can remember working because of rain. CBS gave us the women's final the year it was Kleisters and um, Wozniacki, and I interviewed them both. And they were superstars as far as um, you know. Kim Kleisters is always willing to give you something, and. But both players, they didn't just mail it in. They didn't just give you, like, you know, one phrase answer and look down as if they didn't want to be there. Um, you know, it's it's doing our sport such a disservice to not let the fans in uh, through the media. I mean, how else? You can't have fans ask questions. And you know what? People want to see an athlete before a big competition. They want to hear from them. They want to hear their voice. They want to hear what's on their mind. And no kidding, you're, you're not going to give your game plan to, you know, like the other players standing 10 yards away. I get it. But you can still you can still share something that makes the audience more hooked or more interested for the match or some of the audience. And I think it's all part of the job description. And I get a little bit, I can get pretty annoyed and when time after time after time players act as if, they don't. They shouldn't be asked to do this. And obviously, in my era, we weren't. And I'm sure there'd be some players that would have said, you know, had the same attitude. But you know what? We need to do better to to sell tennis, to market tennis, and make it more interesting. And I, I think some of the top, some of the players have really not done this um, justice. One other thing that you haven't done in it wasn't really around in your era is the post match, the encore interviews have become much more. Uh, ubiquitous than they were um, a few years ago, and you've done those too. I'm just wondering, and you mentioned the 09 U.S. Open, which, remi- which reminds me of one of your famous or infamous moments that went viral on the internet with uh, when you were interviewing Wozniacki about Wickmeyer. <laughs> yeah. This was your first quarterfinal of a major. You win it. You win it as the overwhelming favorite, and you're going to be even more of a favorite in the semifinal playing Wickmeyer of Belgium. How are you, you going to handle that situation? Uh, I mean, uh, what did I say? History will reflect well on your tone because it's not like Wickmeyer's met in any other major semi since then. Yeah, um, I learned a lot from that. If I can, if we can yeah. just stay on that moment, yeah. what I, because. It's whether it's doing an interview or whether it's dealing with my ex-husband on um, co-parenting issues, your tone of voice, how you say something, your inflection means a lot. And as a broadcaster, you need to be somewhat in control of that inflection. And what it came out was mean. And that was not my intent. My intent was, in a way, in a short way, to say, wow, what a, what a great opportunity you have. You've beaten Melanie Uden in the quarterfinals. 
to play Janina Wickmeyer, who's ranked, you know, 55 in the world and never been past the round of 16 to get your first major final. How do you feel about that opportunity? So if I'd said it with, say, that tone of voice, with that kind of instead of like, you know, Janina Wickmeyer, <laughs> like who in the world is Janina Wickmeyer? Um, but that's that's kind of like I'm trying to think, um, you know, you've heard coaches uh, in post-competition press conferences sometimes they'll get stuck. I Was it Mora, the coach for um, New Orleans one time who had a – I don't know. About, oh, about, about the playoffs, say, right? Yeah, about yeah. the playoffs. 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 Yeah. Playoffs. Yeah. yeah. So, as a broadcaster, you never want to inflect your own into the story too much. And look, another one of my famous things when I spoke too loudly watching a James Blake match. Right. I mean, I've had plenty of moments where, you know, I I I should have handled a couple things a little differently. But you know what? That's that's live TV. Yeah. Not in those moments in particular, get stand up, but just more in general, you're not someone who's afraid to share your opinions, to make your thoughts on a match, on a on a incident known. And I think a lot of that um, can sometimes feel uniquely independent in the sort of current broadcast situation um, on all tennis platforms where so many different people um, seem more reluctant to wear their, uh, their hearts on their sleeves about different things. And it oftentimes seems it comes off because of the different roles that so many different people have, mm-hmm. even at ESPN. I mean, there's... You, Ask you know Chrissy has her academy and Mary Jo's Fed Cup and Patrick obviously is all his USDA stuff. Do you feel your sort of being less, being more sort of independent has made it tricky for you that you have to balance what you can and can't say, or does it make you feel like you have more freedom and more responsibility because I guess you're less uh, tied up in other things to, to I speak your mind. I hope it's the latter. I hope that um, first off, I hope a, you know that ESPN appreciates you know, a broadcaster that doesn't have other conflicts of interest or time yeah. or that this is, this is my job. I mean, besides being a mom, this is, this is my job. I, I volunteer for a few charities and this is the work, this is the only work I have. Um, and I think it gives me a ton of freedom and I don't feel the conflict to have to please anybody. I don't feel like I have to um, you know, I don't have to say anything to help, you know, promote something or, um, it's a, it's very liberating actually. At the end of the day, I will tell you that, um, it does make me, I think a little more critical. Yeah. Um, and, and, and sometimes later on, I can, and I, I what I want to be is critical, but not never mean. And sometimes I have to look back and combination of my humor and how I can use sarcasm it's something I would like to continue to improve on is, is to um, have the criticism, but don't have, don't have the criticism come off as being mean. Um, probably the last conflicting thing that I had was the years I had my charity tennis event. And there'd be times where maybe I'd, I'd want to try and have a player play my charity tennis event. And in the time, few months where maybe I was talking to the agent and trying to get them to play, I, I sometimes when I was calling their match, I'd go, gee, this is a different feeling. This is not as free. I don't feel as free. And I haven't had my journey kind of spent about six years, and it's been, it's been even, you know, it's been great. Because when I just broadcast, I just broadcast. I just say exactly what's, what it is. Do you think it's a problem for tennis that in general, the phenomenon of people having so many different, so the same people having multiple big roles uh, in the sport? I think, 
I think it's something that needs to be constantly disclosed yeah. um, to new audiences. I don't think we do that enough. Um, I think when possible, I think if there's talent that can call a match that doesn't have a conflict, that they should call that match. Um, I think it's difficult. Tennis has always been a sport where you have multiple hats. You know, there was a time, I, I was six years, I was on the USTA Board of Directors. Now, it's a volunteer job. I don't get paid for it. That's a totally, it's a totally different job being a volunteer not getting paid than being paid. Right. Um, you know, money is, tends to be what creates more conflicts of interest than anything else. So, you know, it's, it's a tough one. I know internally without divulging, you know, I know it's something that ESPN's aware of and they try and think how to, um, how to handle it. But, you know, with, it's not just ESPN's team. I mean, you could look at uh, well, tennis channel is the same, sure. Yeah, tennis channel. I mean, you, you know, just, probably Justin Dimmelstab has as much going on as anybody. Yeah. Um, and you know, Lindsay being a coach now, and uh, it's and Martina being a coach. Yeah, Martina's a coach, and um, it's so. I I think disclosure is is one of the keys. Have you ever thought about the coaching? Now with all these other past well, players coming in, would you ever do it? Yeah, I think we've all thought about it more in the last couple of years since uh, Murray hired Lendl and, and what's gone on since. Um, I, don't, I don't think about it too much because there's not a lot of room, although I have this great court in my backyard, and <laughs> I, you know, L.A. is L.A., and I've often thought you know, I actually would have some time to carve out that you know, wouldn't involve travel, um, extra travel than my ESPN because that's frankly as much time as I want to be away from my kids. Mm-hmm. But I, I've thought about doing uh, some stuff particularly involving the things that I specialized in, which to me will always be, you know, the serve, um, the transition play to the net position, volleys, the overhead, doubles, um, attacking second serves. You know, people make sort of reference my chip and charge play. Okay, so back in the day it was chip and charge, but what that really was was taking taking charge of somebody's second serve and taking control of the point. Yeah. And um, we, you know, it's not done enough today. It's you know, there's some players that do it, but the second serve is always an opportunity, and not enough people. You know, so anyway, I have certain philosophies. I feel like if people were ever in a position to want to listen. I think I could help, but in the meantime, I'm just getting a kick out of helping my my boys enjoy their tennis in the 10 and under and see them develop and have a ball with it. And, you know, I'm proud of the fact that when I see my 10-year-old son plays a couple of satellite tournaments and he has a, more, a bigger variety of shots, he can hit slice, he can hit topspin, he can hit the drop shot, he can hit the lob. Um, I kind of get a kick out of that. One more sort of current events thing I wanted to ask you about was, was going back watching clips in the last few weeks of the Serena uh, India Wells final in 2001, which you were on the call for. Um, I'm wondering just what your memories of that day were and how, how, it's, if it, how it stands out and how you look back on it now. Well, of the, of the two days, meaning the semifinal telecast, which Mary Jo and I were prepared and ready and being counted by our uh, director to... Um, to go live, uh, and during the last minute of the countdown to our show, live show, was when we got the news that Venus wasn't going to be playing. Mm-hmm. So 
you know, as the play-by-play person, you're in that suddenly you switch from a scripted open uh, and you're just going to do what you're going to do when you're telling the story of two people playing and obviously, you know, the sensation of their matchup. It was still pretty early, oh, one in their in their playing rivalry. Yeah. Um, all of a sudden, in just 30 seconds, we had to turn on a dime and scrap the entire open and just come on live with a breaking news story. So I, I, from a broadcast standpoint, I remember that the most. I certainly remember, too, uh, the day of the finals when Richard, we followed Richard walking down to the courtside box and can remember the crowd reaction. Um, see, you know, I, but I, certain things I can't remember. I, I can't remember if I ever heard any individual. I don't remember recalling anything individually being heard. In other words, more like just the group a, a large crowd showing their displeasure. I thought a chorus of boos, yeah. Yeah, it was a chorus of boos. That's all, that's what I remember. I, and you know, I remember the match a little bit. You know, Serena, you know, started a bit slow and ended up being too tough in the end for Kleisters. And she, you know, it's like another example of how she competes, even when you know things aren't the crowd isn't for her. Um, but. I, I don't remember a lot about what I said. I, I've, I've done one other interview recently, um, and they also had listened to the broadcast, and they actually thought that Mary Jo and I had presented it, it fairly accurately and, and, you know, that we didn't make any uh, major miscues in how we, um, how we did the broadcast. There's obviously certain sensitive topics of, you know, race and, um, you know, as a... Mary Mary Jo is a minority, a Hispanic minority. I mean, I'm I'm very much the majority, and how how I'm sensitive to, you know, a crowd of tennis players that in the end, what was it was interpreted as as race as racist. Mm-hmm. Some some Richard Williams interpreted what he heard and what he felt as racist. And whether it was some things that happened to one of my dearest friends on the tour, Zena Garrison, who I won a gold medal with, uh, certain certain things I did during a match one time that she interpreted as being racist. You know, we, we as in this case a, a white American, we need we need to understand what can be interpreted in in ways that perhaps we didn't mean as a group or as an individual, but to that. To that, in this case, uh, an African American was interpreted, and I believe it was interpreted 100% by R- Richard felt as being racist. Um, and I can understand where, if you interviewed somebody who was in the crowd that day, they'd say that wasn't my intent. I was just mad that I'd bought a ticket to the semifinals, a match I wanted to see, and I didn't see, the, and I got, and I had no notice, and it was like a knee, you know, a sore knee. So, you know, it's. It's a, it's a tough one when you're dealing with sensitive sensitive topics like that, and always will be. For sure. Did, did you get did you have any sense on that day that it was going to Serena wouldn't be back for 14 years that it would come become this no. big saga? No, I I would not have guessed that. I I guess it was probably year two or three that it sounded like she dug her heels in, um, and then it became through most of the last. You know, 14 years, it just became a given. She wasn't yeah. going to play it. Last year, there was the room, you know, there was the thought that, that she would play last year. And I think the ownership chairman, Larry Ellison, big, big influence in changing it. And I also think Serena, now in her mid, mid 30s, entering her mid 30s, 
I mean, she wants, I think she wants to finish everything on her inner career as much as she can on her own terms. And that also means on her own terms, meaning she's not going to let the group that was in the stadium that day who responded the way they did keep her from playing, frankly, one of the great tournaments in the world. And forgiveness and maturity and moving on is what all of us do in life, in in whether it's relationships with relatives, with you know spouses that become ex-spouses, with institutions, schools, you know we we just you, you move on and you recover if things have happened, and you, and if there isn't forgiveness in life, then you're gonna lead a pretty a pretty angry life, and that's that's not healthy. Yeah. Thank you very much, Pam. Uh, one question from Courtney that she sends in, which I wasn't really aware of, but apparently a bunch of people on Twitter um, are very fond of the chemistry that you have on air with Tony Nadal during during oh. during your interviews. And she wonders, as people ask her, uh, when you and Tony might start dating or getting married or something. <laughs> well, first off, I don't think he's single, is he? I'm not sure. But, uh, you know, I'm very appreciative that Tony Nadal started at the U.S. Open about well, one of the first years, I think it was the first year ESPN had the U.S. Open, he said yes to me, and he's never said no. I've been pretty respectful to come at the, at a, at a right, at the right time, and I'm really appreciative of that. And, and as am I of other coaches like David Witt um, and coaches who understand, just like a player walking out there to give a little bit to the crowd, to hear from a coach of a player who's in playing is is a phenomenal bit of in, insight um, for, for those of us who love the sport of tennis. And so I'm glad that Tony, well, first off, he's he's a good sport. It's obviously his second language, third language, or, and it's, he's not comfortable with English, but he does the best he can, and he does give you good little nuggets of information. And so I'm glad it comes across that, you know, that, and I think he's a bit generation that, that remembers my career. So it's not like yeah. I was just some broadcaster coming up and asking. I'm sure he remembers, you know, the career I had, and that helps. Just on the you mentioned the coaches talking. Do you like uh, encore coaching? I I enjoy it when we have our regular tour events. I can understand the slams wanting to have the more traditional route, but you know, when you think about other sports, what other sport? What other major professional sport can the athlete not be coached? Yeah. I mean, it's like if you say golf, they're not coached by their coach, but they have their caddies. Yeah, who are um, pretty much coaches. Every sport, every sport you can think of has has a coach helping them. Yeah, I guess it's just the question good. of whether it, tennis being different is good or bad on some level. Yeah, well... You know, as far as youth tennis, by the way, it's also the only sport that I'm aware of where young young players are asked to make be their own officials. Yeah. And that is a big burden. That's probably been my most awkward thing to watch is um, when my son, you know, in running around the court, hoping and hoping and hoping that this ball is going to be out and then calls it out when, God, son, it was like inside the line. That's like that been the hardest thing for me to witness, and he's not the only one. I, I think some calls in junior tennis are deliberately cheating and wrong, but I think there's a lot of kids that that during this active role of playing a point, 
trying to make a line call and getting it right when you hope it's one thing and they're 10 years old, that's a big responsibility. So anyway, I don't know what that had to do with coaching, but I, it's a difference. <laughs> no, I it's a different. It's how tennis is unique from other sports. Well, thank you very much, Pam, for, for being with us on the show today. This was great. Um, we usually let our guests pick like an outro song uh, to play you out. Is there is there a Pam Shriver theme song of any kind? Um, I think there's a big song right now that um, funk. What's the funk? Uptown uh, funk. My, Uptown funk my, is my kid's favorite song right now. Okay. So are we allowed to do Uptown totally, funk? Totally, that'll work. Okay. All right. Let's let's do that. All Thanks, right. Ben. Thanks. Thanks, Courtney. Thank you very much, Pam. And now it's time for our rant rave segment to end the show. Before we do that, as always, a reminder that you can follow the show and you're not listening by following us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can also like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash NCR podcast. You can subscribe to the show any manner of ways on podcast apps, on iTunes, and leave reviews on iTunes and stuff is great. You can also, if you have questions for an upcoming show, you can tweet them to us or you can send us an email for a longer question, which we love getting email questions. You can send those to no challenges remaining at gmail.com. And as we mentioned at the beginning, if you guys can fill out our listener survey, which we've tweeted and put on Facebook, that would be awesome as well. My rant for this week, and I'll go first this week, Courtney, because yours is, I think, near and dear to your heart than mine is about to be. <laughs> My rant is very short. It's about Snapchat. I have friends who've tried to get me on Snapchat like very aggressively weirdly for a while, and I finally did. And they send me these snaps, and they're terrible. (laughs) They're the worst things. I have one friend who, and he's normally like a normal person, but for some reason he slips into this weird gutter of banality on Snapchat where he sends me like photos of like his socks because he has like interesting dress socks. And it's like, here I am, like, here's like me looking at some legal paper and you can see my socks clearly, and the socks are kind of the point. And it's like for a day. And it's like, what? I don't care. I really, Snapchat is the first technology that has really made me feel old. I just feel like I'm way too old for Snapchat, and I'm not that old. If anybody thinks Snapchat is worthwhile or not, let me know. I'm actually curious. I'm going to put out like a call here. If anyone wants to send me what are good Snapchats to show me, because I have a few friends on Snapchat who I think all suck at it. And none of them are listening to this show, presumably. So I can say that with impunity. Yeah, anyone, my username on there is Ben Rothenberg. Send me what is a good Snapchat. I don't need photos of your genitalia, which I know is the obvious (laughs) answer (laughs) to Snapchat. If you want to, fine, but they will not be reciprocated. Yeah, I think Snapchat's awful, but I'm interested to be proved wrong. I'll give it like two weeks. And if I get any good Snapchats, great. I'll keep it. Otherwise, the app is going in the trash next to Candy Crush. Dude, I have... A complaint about your rant. Okay. Because I feel like that's not a rant about Snapchat. That's a rant about your friends. <laughs> that's partially fair. <laughs> but I just don't know. Using Snapchat, I find it weirdly not user-friendly. The app itself is not great either. And I just... And even examples I've seen online of like funny snaps, I don't get them. I'm a Twitter person first and foremost. Social network-wise, people know. And I just think Snapchat is inferior. So if I had to zoom it out, I'm not sure if it's the medium or the people. But I think the medium sucks, but I'm curious to be proven wrong, if possible. Fair enough. I, I'm not so on it. I don't use call. it. My primary, the, the main reason I don't use Snapchat is because generally speaking, I, my personal philosophy is do not put shit like out, 
of like that stuff out there unless you're willing for it to be made public. Right. Um, that's just a pretty good rule of, you know, rule of, of, of law as you attempt to navigate social media and the internet generally people like even emails, tweets, texts, like whatever, even if it's a private account lockdown, like whatever, like there is no safe place on the internet. So no, just, yeah. And I worry about it being this popular with kids. Like Snapchat, sure. it's, a, it's a worrying technology. I remember. Yeah. It, it's just, it's problematic. And when I first came out and it's been around for a few years, I think gotten more popular or more mainstream over time. But when it first came out, I'm pretty sure it was exclusively for the aforementioned genitalia pictures. Yes. Like I just don't know. It was what for sexting. Wholesome, yeah. It's for sexting. I don't know what, wholesome purpose it has and the sock pictures are not doing it for me so <laughs> anyway that's the end of that for me i'm just saying snapchat not great but feel free to prove me wrong if you want to try courtney you had a much more positive experience in life up in new york and the reason one of the large reasons you're in new york so why don't you tell people about that sure so my rave this week um yes i'm in new york and i don't like new york um it's not my city it's a great city i think it's the greatest city in all the world it just it just it's it's bad for me it's not a place that i would ever voluntarily spend money to come and spend time in normally but i am here in new york uh to see my favorite band in the whole world and probably the big the more that i think about it i start to realize that they are like the most personally influential not just band, but possibly piece of pop, piece of culture or like whatever in my life. Um, and that band is Slater Kinney, which is a band that disbanded in 2006. Um, first album came back, came out not, back in 1995 when I was uh, in high school. And yeah, and uh, they just reunited this year, uh, put out a new album that they didn't even announce until it was in the can and recorded. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's called No Cities to Love. It's just as propulsive and angry and smart and just really well made um, as any of their other albums so they they still got it but I'm here I saw them on Friday at uh, at Terminal 5 and it was just an absolutely amazing experience and it was great to see them again because yeah I hadn't seen them since I guess 2006 2005 whichever was their last show before they returned to Portland it was at Lollapalooza so I think it was 06 yeah it was amazing but my rave is actually for kind of a broader point <laughs> about uh, Slater Kenny. it was funny because I was at a cafe today it's snowing like mad in New York so I was just kind of ducking out and I was in Gregory's uh, cafe which is one of my favorite coffee places in Midtown fiddling around and stuff and I was looking at my iTunes top 25 and if you follow me on Twitter you probably know what I'm about to say but um, you know the 25 most played things in yeah. my iTunes and 24 of them 24 of 25 like one through 24 actually had only to do with two things. One was episodes of Broad City, <laughs> and the other was Slater Kinney songs. And you know what, Ben, was number 25? What's that? Before Sunset. <laughs> oh, yeah. So, like, my entire, as Ben knows, like, this is my life. Like, that top yep. 25 is, like, my life. Um, I mean, everything that I love in the world. Um, but, yeah, so I was thinking kind of, like, about, like, Broad City and Slater Kinney, um, and there's this great NPR interview that um, they actually had the Broad City Girls um, interview Slater Kinney, um, which is like my world colliding into itself and having sex with itself, kind of. It's like a weird thing, but I loved it, which you can watch. But what I really loved, like 
kind of listening to them talk um, and why Slater Kinney matters so much to me in the course of my life. And then also why I love Broad City so much, not just as a show, the show is hilarious, but as just what these two women has, have, have done is Ben and I were talking about this a few weeks ago about, you know, we get a lot of emails or questions like, oh, how do I become like a tennis writer? How do I do this? How do I do what you guys do? Your jobs sound awesome. I want to do it. Like, how do I do it? And, and we do get a lot of them. Yeah, we do get a lot of them. And we apologize for not answering every single one. But um, I usually answer. But that's okay. Oh, you're much better than I am. I know. Because I get very tongue tied. I don't really know what to say because I know that my path is not the right path for everyone. And everybody's coming from different places. Yeah. No, I say that too. Yeah. I say that too, for sure. But what we both kind of agreed upon and what is really kind of very basic, especially within my own core and my own ethos is like, like if you want to do yeah. something just go do it. Like, don't ask anybody for permission. Don't ask anybody necessarily, not that you don't ask people to help you. You can, but like, don't expect. Don't wait for an invitation. Exactly. Don't expect people to open the door for you. Like, oh, do you want to, you know, do this? Like here, like help me, you know, like just go and do it, right? Start a blog. That's what happened. That's what I did um, with respect to the tennis writing and all that. And we started a podcast because we just wanted to. There's no reason. There wasn't really anything past that that we thought about. And that's something that's very like that's some that like an ethos that I feel like I definitely learned from Slater Kinney and that I see being continued through with Broad City is like these women who from Slater Kinney's perspective, like they were this just two women who were in college and they were like, Let's start a band and you know, and they just did and it just didn't they didn't sit there and ask the guys, Hey, can I be a part of your band? I play guitar, can I be your lead singer. They're just like, let's start a band and we'll kind of figure it out as we go along. And that's always been kind of their mentality. And then with Broad City, it was the same thing. They were Alana Glazer and Abby Jacobson were like two friends who met at the UCB theater here in New York um, and weren't getting cast, weren't, um, you know, getting opportunities really, even though they kept trying out. So they were like, hey, let's make our, let's write parts for us and they did and they started this web series and um now it's like pretty much universally considered the funniest thing on television right now and they're like absolute icons and again it was just a matter of like just do it like don't wait for somebody to find you or discover you like demand your spot at the at the table demand your your position in the room and be good at what you do and execute and you know that's the best advice I could give but that's just something that you know, I definitely just attach myself to whenever I listen to Slater Kinney's music or I read about Broad City or watch their show. I'm like, these these bitches did it, dude. They just like picked it up and they went and they ran. It was awesome. Yeah, that ethos sort of applies to any walk of life. Like, obviously, we get the how to be a tennis writer emails and questions. But I think sort of that sort of mindset will serve you well. I totally agree. No matter what you do in the world. And you will so. fail. Like, there are going to yeah. be things that, like, you want to do. Like, I was telling my friend this this weekend that, like, I love – I want to be able to, like, be a photographer. Like, I really want to be able to take, like, really nice pictures. And I have, like, invested money and time in trying to, like, get into it. And I just suck so bad at it <laughs> that, like, you know, there comes a point where I'm like, well, you know, I guess I'm not good at it. But at least I tried. Yeah. Right. Like, you know, like I wanted to learn how to play guitar once. I just picked it up and I started playing ukulele. That looked cool. Bought one, played it. You really wanted to be a drum or bassist for a while and bought a bass with the amp and everything and then realized like, no, I'm not good at this at all. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, like at least I tried and now I know. So I don't know. It's something that is like 
I don't know, for me personally, it's, it's just like breathing. But I realize sometimes that that's not the case, that people are kind of waiting for their opportunity. And it's, I always just want to sh- shake people and be like, don't wait, just go grab it. And um, it's, a, it's a pretty good way to live life. And it's pretty cool that a band more or less taught you that. Yeah, I know. And it, it's, you know, and some of it's in their music. I mean, their music is very kind of political sometimes, and it's very personal as well. And um, obviously, they came out of the Riot Girl movement. So there's a lot of kind of like, their early stuff is very kind of demanding a seat at the table and, and, but not complaining about it, just being like, we're here, you know? And um, they have this one song called you're no rock and roll fun, which is basically a diss track um, towards like all the male bands who were like, like they were, they're very normal girl, like women who they don't look like punk stars, right? They don't have like the mohawks or anything. Like you'd walk right past them on the street. But yeah, like all these guys would be like, Oh, like you can't, you know, you can't hang out with us. You're not cool enough or whatever. And they're like, whatever, bro. Like, you know, we're, we're here. So yeah, no, it, it is very cool. And I think that that's why, you know, with them, like there are many music, musical artists that I love, but that band is like part of my DNA. And at least right now, in terms of what I'm obsessed with in pop culture, I could probably say the same thing about Broad City. Like they inspire me to want to do more and to like, listen to, you know, my inner voice and all that sort of stuff and just not be scared. And like they were talking about how they got because Amy Poehler executive produces their show was going they wanted her to do a cameo at the end of their web series. And they were like super nervous, but fi- like to ask her. But then finally, they're just like, what's going to happen? She says no. Like, this, just shoot the freaking email. Like, just we're yeah. just shooting her an email. And they did. And she turns out that she knew about the show. And so she appeared in it. And then they asked her if she would want to executive produce. And she's like, yeah. And it's like, man, all they did was ask. It's not like they like jumped through hoops or were doing something super, super difficult. But for some reason, like it's very easy to feel like you don't deserve to even ask the question. And that is something that can be incredibly detrimental to anybody's life or career. So, you know, little little life lessons you learn. Also, the show is fucking hilarious. So there you go. So. Courtney, on the Slater Kinney side, I know nothing about Slater Kinney more or less, and really was barely aware of them until you came into my life. So, <laughs> what what should the Slater Kinney outro be, and why? I am going to say, oh, this is so hard. <laughs> They're all so good. Um, I'm going to say "Entertain," which is a song off of their second to last album, "The Woods." which is an amazing album. It's an album that no matter how loudly or quietly you listen to it, it sounds like your speakers are broken. Um, it's just so incredible in terms of all sound. But the reason that I would pick Entertain is that it's not just a great song, but it's kind of about this. Um, it's a critique, I guess, uh, specifically of kind of the ideas of nostalgia and people who feel like, you know, everything is supposed to be there for them, that it's like artists are supposed to cater to them. And, you know, if you don't do the thing that I love, then you, you're you lame and like whatever. And um, kind of the recurring hook within Entertain is, you know, you want to be entertained. And they're, they're basically saying, Slater Kinney is saying, go away. Like, we're not here to entertain you. We're here to do our thing. And if, you know, you like that, great. And if you don't, leave. And I love that as as just a in ethos so there you go so we we are happy to be here to entertain you guys all the same and i don't care you can go away so that's we'll let you leave now though but but in a, on more nice terms this later kenny would put it i i'll personally say thank you guys very much for listening and we'll be back to you next week see you guys later